in our series on 1 John, and we turn to the last chapter of 1 John, namely chapter 5, of which we read to verses 1 through 17. 1 John 5, the verses 1 through 17, is our scripture passage to which we will respond by singing from hymn 19, the stanzas 1, 3, and 4. Hymn 19, 1, 3, and 4, in response to the reading of this God's Word. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and his life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So far the reading of God's holy word. Verses 14 through 17 of the passage that we read together. 1 John 5, from verse 14 through verse 17. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, 
that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. That's our text. In response to the sermon, we will be singing from Psalm 141, the stanzas 1 through 4 and 7. 1, 2, 3, 4, and 7. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you pray for others, brothers and sisters, for your fellow member? Of course, I know that we do so here on Sundays, but what about at home, in the family, at the supper table? Do you pray for a member who is sick or grieving or going through a difficult time for a broken family or for a straying brother or sister? In many a situation we say then, at least we can still pray for him or all we can do yet is pray that it could come across as if that's not much. As if we would like to do much, much more, but we can't. Yet it's not little. It's very important. We hold him or her up to God the Father at his throne of grace. Do you do that? It shows the bond of faith and love. It's an important aspect of the communion of saints. It proves you are a living member. Like Christ, like Christians, they intercede for one another. In this way, we exercise our corporate responsibility as body of Christ, praying for each other. As you will recall from our sermons in this series, beloved, central in 1 John is the communion with God and the bond of fellowship among the members. It shows in the love for one another because Christ loved us and in him the Father's love was reflected. When we walk in the light, as John started out his epistle, we have this communion with God and with each other. That's the bond of faith. Central in this communion, then, is prayer. Prayer to God through Christ, our advocate, and intercession for each other. 
It seems like John brings this in yet as an afterthought in this epistle to the congregations he served. But it's not an afterthought, though. It's the first and foremost way to maintain the communion with God and each other. James also does the same at the end of his epistle. Although John has mentioned prayer before in his epistle, chapter 1, verse 9, and 3, verse 21, he now ends promoting this prayer so that the members will sustain this strong bond by interceding for each other. That's very important, especially when someone commits sin and strays from the Lord and his congregation. Yet, as John points out, there could be limits to such prayers. Where? Well, let's hear John's exhortation and apply it in love. So I summarize the message of this morning as follows. Reflect God's love in your intercessions. That's our focal point. We see, first of all, the reason for these intercessions, and secondly, the restriction to these intercessions. Reflect God's love in your intercessions. We see, first, the reason for these intercessions, and secondly, the restriction to these intercessions. So, first of all, the reasons for this, these intersections. An important preliminary question, brothers and sisters, is this one. Do you believe that prayer helps? Truly. How confident are you when it comes to your personal prayers? Does God hear you? Or do you have the feeling that your prayers won't go beyond the ceiling of your room? Does God hear your prayer? Yes, also in the way we mean this hearing, namely answering them, fulfilling our petitions. You see, if we don't have that confidence, our prayers will decrease and our requests diminish. If and when we have this bond of faith with God, however, trusting that His Son is our advocate, our intercessor, we may and must have the confidence. That's what John wants to lay on our hearts first of all. Have this confidence. It's one of the key words in his epistle. Perhaps you will remember that beautiful play on words in chapter 2, verse 28. Parousia regarding Christ's parousia. Confidence regarding Christ's appearance. Prayer requires confidence. You don't pray just hoping for the best, but you pray with a firm confidence that you have this bond with God and that you may entrust yourself to Him. On the basis of our firm, yes, eternal bond with God, beloved, we may have full confidence when we ask things of God the Father. He listens to our prayers, John assures us, and he also answers our prayers. 
all of them. Whatever we ask or wish, no, John adds, he does when we ask according to his will. John had learned that from his master, too, who submitted to the will of his father when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Lord Jesus taught this before as well, that God's Word has to remain in us, or that we should remain in Him, pray in His name. In all these expressions, we learn to pray to stay in line with God's Word, with His plans. We must place His name, His Word, and His work first and foremost in our prayers to God. Then Christ himself can be involved, first of all, as our intercessor. It won't even be good for us, even when God the Father would fulfill all our wishes. He does fulfill all his promises, though, and we may confidently appeal to them. He wants to give faith, hope, and love. His Spirit wants to work patience, endurance, and perseverance. We don't have to be unsure about that. So that's an important requirement, beloved, which we should heed before we consider these intercessions for each other. Confidence. Confidence that God will give what you need. Yes, you may be bold in approaching his throne of grace with those petitions. We can be as sure about that as we can be about the return of Christ. As I said in chapter 2, verse 28, or about God's love for us, chapter 3, verse 21, and about his justice for us on the day of judgment, chapter 4, verse 17. Then you don't need to fear that you will be condemned but justified in Christ, you will be heard as a father listens to his children. You may be boldly encouraged that he will hear you because you belong to him as his child bought by Christ. Of course, that's the basis. The work of his son, whose work of atonement laid the foundation for your confidence. He said it himself, whatever you ask in my name will be heard. Thus you and Christ join in prayer the same petitions, intercessions. Amazing. You may know that, John adds, twice even, insisting that we have this assurance if we ask anything according to his will, that is, of course then God will hear. Yes, John expresses this assurance and confidence even further by saying, we know that we have what we ask of him. You don't ask as if you already have received it. No, you may be confident that you have what you ask. How is it possible Beloved, that John expresses himself so confidently. Well, even when you ask what God himself promised you, he can't refuse. 
then he would have to refuse what his own son is asking him to. And what he earned for us. So since he promised faith and will give it, even though your weakness and distrust may be there. When he has promised hope too, however desperate you may feel at times, and peace as well, while you may feel filled with unrest and love, even when you are struggling with lovelessness in your life. When you are struggling with these needs, you can approach the throne of God's grace with the greatest confidence, yes, his throne of grace, of which Isaiah prophesied that he longs to be gracious to you. Now it is in this context, beloved, that John also exhorts to pray for one another, for your brothers and sisters in the faith. As I said already, on earth, John has seen his master pray, praying for his people, for his church, his followers. John has mentioned already that he still speaks to the Father in our defense. So as I said, like Christ, like Christians, as our Savior, who is the Son of God with the Father, he models this approach to his brothers and sisters, and he still does so himself. He prayed for Peter when he said, Satan tried to sift you like the wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Then Jesus did not stop Peter in his denial of the Lord, yet Peter could continue in faith. In his high priestly prayer too, Christ prayed for the ones the Father has given to him, for his church in the world, and for more petitions. Even at the cross, he prayed for the ones who crucified him. You know, then in the book of Acts, we see the deacon Stephen pray for the same, following his master's example. When Stephen was stoned, he prayed for the crowd, including Saul, who later was called Paul. Christ and Stephen and James and Peter and John knew how important such intercessions were to the Father. When we pray, therefore, we must not just pray for ourselves, but for others as well. Yes, and then John shifts the attention to the matter of sin, beloved. And he makes these intercessions very important by having a brother or sister who sins in his focus. When you see that or have become aware of it, you must pray for him or her. That's not your talking about each other behind the back, but you are talking about each other with God. Indeed, praying for a fellow member who has sinned is better than dumping him, or ignoring her, or gossiping about him or her. You know, it happens so easily, and then we shake our head and express how disappointed we are, 
And with pious words, we can become so conceited or complacent about ourselves. No. Then a scriptural approach would be to speak with this brother or sister, point out the sin, speak about it gently and sensitively, humbly and helpfully, placing yourself beside him or her. And then in all humility, you show yourself concerned about him or her, and yes, then you make intercession for him or her. And of course, it's true, John doesn't mention those initial steps in our text. He, his full emphasis is on your intercessions. Bring them before the throne of God's grace. That's how you express the bond of faith and love. You pray for each other. And do you know why that is so important, beloved? Well, John says, as our ESV translates it, then God will give him life. But let me hasten to add, though, that in the Greek, the name of God is not mentioned at all. That's the translator's interpretation of our text, as the footnote also indicates. Of course, it's ultimately true that God gives life, but he does use people for that too. Literally, John therefore says that he, the one who prays for the sinning brother, he gives life to him. We find the same in the epistle of James, chapter 5, verse 15, also toward the end of his epistle, where he writes that the brother's prayer in faith will raise him up. Also, James 5, verse 19, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Well, here in our text, John likewise assures you of the very important reason and power of your intercession. You, yes, you will give him life. John means the life in Christ, of course. For as he has said before, in verse 12, he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. So let us first of all heed John's exhortation, beloved, to pray for each other, also for your fellow member who sins, and realize that such intercessions have the power of life. As James puts it, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. God wants to be prayed. God wants to be gracious. God wants to strengthen the bond of faith among the communion of saints by your intercessions. God sees in your intercessions his own love reflected his love as revealed and manifested by his Son. So that first. And secondly, the restriction to these intercessions. Now with this inter exhortation, brothers and sisters, many questions 
may come to our heart and mind as well. I'm thinking of a couple whose child has strayed from the Lord, and all admonitions and exhortations, all pleadings and petitions fall on deaf ears for a long time. How long do they keep up their intercessions? When do we give up praying, or when do we have to accept the reality, or when does praying become nagging? Are there limitations or restrictions? John's words in our text have often occupied the hearts and minds and discussions of God's people with questions like these. When do you give up praying for a sinner, for an excommunicated brother, or for a loved one who is straying or stubbornly persisting in sin? Also, what does John mean with this sin that leads to death, or mortal sins, as the Roman Catholic Church calls the more serious sins of hardened sinners? distinguishing between more or less serious sins. Is John speaking about sins that are not confessed? Or does he speak about the sin against the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, as it is called as well? What's the limit to these intercessions? Well, let's put it clearly up front, beloved, that John isn't making distinctions between smaller or bigger sins. In Roman Catholic understandings, sins not unto death and bigger sins such as murder or abuse. John has shown and does show that sin is sin. Yet not every sin ends up in death in spiritual death, that is, in life without God, without Christ. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. In fact, John's initial dealing with sin in chapter 1, verse 8, and 2, verse 2, pursued the, the glorious grace of the forgiveness of sins. The blood of Christ purifies us from all sin. Verse 7, Christ's blood cleanses us from all sorts of sins, of sins that are of various degrees of seriousness. As we confess in the canons adored, his death was powerful enough to make atonement for the sins of the whole world. Hence, our intercessions can go far, very far. The deacon Stephen prayed for the crowd, including Saul or Paul, whose hatred and opposition and fanaticism grew as time went on. Yet his prayer was heard, for Paul did come to repentance and faith in Christ. Or what about David and the blood he had on his hands, the guilt he bore towards Uriah? and the sin he committed against the Lord and against Bathsheba. What to think as well of Peter's denial, who swore an oath, saying that he didn't know the Lord Jesus. Mortal sins, you could say, but not unpardonable. They received forgiveness upon confession and repentance. 
Let's realize first of all, brothers and sisters, that John was writing his epistle in grave concern for his congregations. He had been alerting these brothers and sisters for the error of the Antichrist, as we have seen. They did not want to hear of the divinity of Christ. In church history, we call this the heresy of docetism. These people taught that Christ perhaps seemed divine, seemed, dokio in Greek, from which the word docetism is derived, that he perhaps seemed divine, but he wasn't. Anyone who denies Christ as Son of God and seeks communion with God without him, denying his divinity, cannot go to him for the forgiveness of sins or for the salvation unto life. If Christ is the life indeed, anyone who lives without him or denies him remains in death. Unless they repent and turn to Christ, their life ends up in death. Sins that leads to death despises what God has given and revealed as the only way of life and salvation. The author of the letter to the Hebrews expresses it this way. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? Hence, it's not just a one-time denial or sin, but a stubborn rejection of Christ by someone who knows better. So is John thinking of what the Lord Jesus calls the sin against the Holy Spirit? Matthew 12, verse 32. That sin cannot be forgiven, our Savior has said. That could well be, for he too meant the sin of those who continue to deny that Christ was the Son of God. Yes, even blaspheme him as being the son of Belial. On the other hand, however, people who are deeply concerned or troubled about their sins, serious though they may be, need not be afraid that such are the mortal sins John is speaking about. Even those who crucified the Son received forgiveness. People who live in a spiritual pit of anxiety about their sin, as I've come across in my pastoral experience as well, may be told that they need not worry about having committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. Although there is a serious warning in it, though, namely that you could get stuck so much in a sinful course of life that you reach a point of no return. That's possible. Hence, you can be careful enough and watch yourself. So then, when do we stop praying for a sinner, beloved? When they are stubborn? Or when they adopt a rebellious lifestyle? 
or when Christ doesn't mean much to them, as people have often concluded? No. That's not what John is saying. In fact, and listen well, John isn't saying at all that you have to stop praying. Reading our text carefully and closely, John says, I do not say that he should pray for that. You still may. John doesn't forbid prayer for someone whose life may end up in death. Yet you don't have to, John says. We have the impression that he discourages it. But that's mainly because the context shows that in that situation, he doesn't quite know for sure whether such a prayer will be heard. He leaves it up to the discretion of his readers, of their conscience. At the same time, we do know from the Word of God that for God, there is a limit sometimes. In Jeremiah 7, verse 16, the Lord tells Jeremiah three times that he may no longer pray for God's people. That's upon God's command, however, which is something we don't always know. Even if we stop praying for someone, beloved, that doesn't mean that the other will be lost, actually. We don't know that. That's not for us to know. We may think that someone is impenitent while God has other plans with him. We may be powerless when someone chooses against God and shows no interest in Christ. We may be inclined to give up hope, and we may be unable to bring them to repentance. Yet that's not to say that it's impossible that they will come to faith and repentance. We have to leave that up to God. We sometimes come to the point of excommunicating someone, yet with God this could be the remedy unto repentance and return. We may have stopped praying for them, but God may continue with them. Nothing is impossible for him. His love we cannot fathom. The love of Christ, too, may continue as he intercedes for such a sinner. He knows the Father, and he knows their plans. Also, that no one can snatch them out of his hand whom the Father has given him. In the meantime, however, we should continue to fight against the devil, the world, and our own flesh. We should continue to pray for each other, interceding on the basis of the truth that he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. We should watch over each other and hold on to each other, keeping each other in word and deed, in prayer and petition, in the unity with Christ. Hence, we continue our intercessions, knowing that Christ will continue to intercede for us. Amen.